call unto thee, O Lord, and send down my life to guide us, for we are weak and afraid, and we lack knowledge. There is no one to hear your plea, no one to answer you, no one to ease your suffering. Lord, have mercy upon us. Hey, hey, welcome to the NY Patriot Show. Here we delve deep into the abyss, covering topics such as occultism, spirituality, secret societies, conspiracies, and the unknown. Join us in trying to put these pieces together and figuring all this shit out. The NY Patriot Show. Welcome back to the NY Patriot Show. Uh, today, we have a, an amazing guest, somebody that always brings tons of knowledge with his, you know, with his shows and what he brings to the table. And uh, I'm just really excited to have him back on. We had him on the Occult Rejects. Uh, we're supposed to have him back on, just didn't work out. But uh, we're going to have him on my show instead. Today, we have Gary Wayne, and uh, we're going to talk about Revelations, which should be a real interesting one, and I'm assuming the fans and the listeners will love it as well. So, uh, yeah, Gary, let everybody know, in case nobody has heard of you before, let everybody know who you are, and let the people know where they can find your stuff as well, please. Yeah, yeah. so my name's Gary Wayne, and uh, I call myself a Christian contrarian because I tend to want to verify things for myself. I don't necessarily... And rarely accept what somebody says without verifying it myself or what somebody says something says. So my research, my research is based on that. And uh, I'm an author of a book called The Genesis Six Conspiracy. And it's probably the most complete book on uh, giants that is out there in terms of telling the whole story. And I have a sequel that is going to be coming out that's strictly for Christians that goes into all the different aspects about the giants in the Bible. Um, oh, nice. fallen angels, how it connects into prophecy. So, uh, but this book here, it, it's, it's designed to take you from the beginning and right to the end time. And so if you want to get a feel for the book, uh, you can go to my website at the Genesis six conspiracy.com. That's Genesis six with the number six conspiracy.com on the website. I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters, so you can get a good feel for oh, the nice. book. And, there's so much information in the book. That's just a small snippet of what's in there. And it's one of those books that people tend to use as a reference book and they don't speed read it because there are no loose uh, sentences in there. There isn't filler in there. It's all information that's coming at you all the time. So anyways, you can get a hold of me through that website by contact the author if you want to ask me a question or if you'd like a little bit more information on something that I might be talking about. And I do give away a lot of documents in terms of um, the work that I do for at no charge. And you can purchase a signed copy from the website as well oh, on nice. the buy now. And you can also link over on that website to the uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, amazon.ca, and to the Kindle version. And it's available on most online bookstores, and your bookstore could order it in through Bookmasters if they if you wanted to support your local bookstore. So oh, nice. that's uh, that's kind of basically who I am. And uh, 
and uh, I love mythology. I love history. I love prophecy. And uh, I love talking about to people about how understanding prehistory is so important to understand the times that we are in today. Very nice, Gary. So we'll get into uh, Revelations. So I'd be interested to hear like what your take on that is with the Bible. Well, it's it's a big book in the Bible, that's for sure. It is probably it is without question in my mind the most uh, controversial book in the Bible because it's all for for the most part all prophecy. Yeah, and it is filled with allegory. It is oh, filled Thomas. with terms and phraseology that you know have turned people's brains to mush over the last two millennia, trying to figure out what it means and. It sort of goes to the point that I was talking about earlier that to understand what's going on today and even more so to understand end-time prophecy, you have to understand prehistory because that's the context and that's where all the allegories are sort of defined. So if you can do that, it starts to help you understand. One of the other issues with Revelation is is how to understand the chronology of how revelation is based and people will fold like, for example, the bull judgments and the Trump trumpet judgment judgments and the seal judgments into one set of disasters and catastrophes as opposed to separate ones. And there's all sorts of different approaches as to do they come in chronological order? Are they topical? And how, how do you sort of understand that? One of my approaches to prophecy is that, First of all, I do not leave out inconvenient passages. So everything's, <laughs> everything's got to fit. I mean, you know, and so um, there's a, so That's many funny. different theories out there. Everything works until you start putting in the inconvenient passages, and then everything sort of falls apart and people go back into confusion. Probably the most important thing, though, other than the two things that I talked about, which are important, but the most important thing to understand is that if you, and as a Christian, it's really important, I think, to get this, um, is that if you put everything around what Jesus said, he provides you the chronology for the end time. So if you did that, Revelation falls into place. And for the most part, Revelation is a fairly linear prophecy, if you understand it that way. And you've got a few different components. You've got the first five chapters that's sort of dealing with uh, what's going on on in heaven it gives you uh, some representations of the different kinds of the churches and there's a lot of in- interpretations as to what those churches mean and who they are but we what we do know is is what people say they are it was the seven churches that were at the time of the writing in the time of Paul and Peter and John who were you know putting together most of the of, of, of the New Testament that includes John with revolu- uh, Revelation. So, and that's true because the letter goes to those seven churches. Oh. And some people think it's a church age, right? And that these are the seven church ages. And I'm not necessarily against that either. That's a distinct possibility as an addition to the existing churches and warnings and things, but it's prophetic. So one would expect this has to do with the future. And it probably also represents the end time churches 
for the end time. And I think it's all three. I think you kind of get a little bit of all three and there's been good cases. So, but that just sort of sets the table in there for you. And there's one interesting phrase in revelation two, eight, that is kind of key where it says that there will be tribulation for 10 days. And so, and we ought not oh. to, and we ought not <laughs> to confuse tribulation with wrath. There are two different things. And so, uh, tribulation starts for if that 10 days is as Daniel talks about in Daniel nine twenty seven in the weeks of years in the last seven years. And we know those are the last, um, seven years because the Hebrew word that goes back to end will is actually will define that as the end time as the end days. So we know that that seven years are grouped for the last seven years. And so we have 10 days of tribulation that is longer than the last seven years. So if you're looking at tribulation, there's going to be more tribulation than what people might think. Yeah. Um, so to sort of understand things, and Jesus points back to Daniel in the middle of his oration in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17, and Luke 21. He refers back to Daniel where he sets the abomination in the middle for his chronology. And we know he's providing us a chronology and not just topics because he uses the word then and when. And that goes back to the Greek word tote that means at that time then when so he gives you a chronology and he gives you the middle point and it matches up perfectly with what daniel is talking about so what jesus is talking about what daniel is talking about revelation is talking about is the same chronology you just have to match them up and it's important to 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 understand that and my sort of basis for approaching prophecy is to put everything around what Jesus said and not vice versa. And when you do that, you start to eliminate the um, chronological conundrums (laughs) 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 and things start to start to make some sense. So that's just sort of a, an opening sort of volley on, on revelations. Uh, Is there a part of revelations that you'd like to focus on or, no, well, uh, there was two interesting things that I had thought. Uh, one, uh, the whole idea of the Scarlet Whore. And two, um, was it Daniel that he spoke to kind of? I know it's depending on which kind of version of the Bible you want to read. There is like some, you know, I've seen where it kind of sees, you could see how Jesus is saying, I am the morning star. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it might, I don't know if it was Daniel that he was saying that too, but I think that's in Revelations as well. Impossibly, it's in that. Revelation yeah, yeah. that he's the morning star. Yeah, so those and two, that, I was re- actually really interested on in what you thought as well. With that. yeah, well, and and most people confuse that with uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve as son of the morning, uh, and saying okay, Venus is the son of the morning. That's a reference to Lucifer in the King James Version Bible, which is actually a, a uh, kind of a odd translation to put it nicely. You have an Italian word that's inserted into the English language for a Hebrew word that represents Venus. And the actual Hebrew word there is Hail El, which is likely the name of Satan before he was degraded or one of the names. And, you know, like in the book of Enoch, some people think Gadrael would be another one of the names uh, for Satan, which is the wall of God. And so he probably had many names and he had many positions. Um, so when we look at the morning star, that is, uh, Halel Ben Shakar, Halel son of the morning. It has nothing to do, uh, with, with Lucifer other than that's a word that sort of is 
derived in Latin from Venus and Lux and a few other words like that. So, but he's the sun of the morning. He's not the morning star. And there are two different things that are being talked about there. So, and not that Satan wasn't a very important individual, but um, for people who are getting some of the misinformation that uh, Jesus and, and Lucifer are the same individual and there's a common sort of theology out there about that, that, that doesn't really line up if you look at, um, you know, the actual wording on that. And so uh, you're looking at also talking about uh, the book of Daniel as to whether or not Jesus provided that to him or, yeah, well, he does get a vision of a, a person like the son of man, right? So, uh, it would you know Daniel's a very very important individual and he's he's visited by you know angels like archangels like Gabriel and Michael and he gets you know these visions and so it would not surprise me that he might have a vision of of the Son of Man just as Zachariah does um, just as Ezekiel probably has some sort of vision in there that he may have not understood what the son of man was because he doesn't really describe it in his visions of heaven but one expects that you would see the word of God in his spirit form with God at that time right because it's the word that became flesh and the word when God speaks that's who the word that's who the word is. And so one expects that uh, even Abraham probably witnessed the son of man, which is uh, the vision, not the vision, but the meeting of uh, Melchizedek. Because uh, Melchizedek, as in the book of Hebrews, does not have a genealogy. He does not have a mother or a father. And oh. it would make sense that he's going to bless the patriarch that's going to produce Israel, who's going to produce the Messiah, which is him. So it would make sense from all of that. And he's also represented <laughs> as the angel of the Lord in the spirit form uh, in, in the Old Testament as well. So, I mean, the whole book is about the Word of God. And that's why in the book of Revelation, right at the end, where he have the, have, has his name um, in Revelation 19, you know, he he's... He's the word of God as he's named in Revelation, and he's the spirit of prophecy. So for all of those reasons, one ought to go back to what he says and put everything around what he says. And Jesus, when he provides the details, tells us to learn everything about Daniel that we can for the most part because he provides so much information that's going to help us understand Revelation and fill in all of the details to the events that he is prophesying in his oration. Nice. You know, you had mentioned before, uh, I feel like, you know, and one of the reasons why I even brought that up is because you had mentioned the, the number seven a few times. And I know like uh, that made me think of uh, Netzach on the tree of life, which is the seventh sphere. And then I, you know, that made me think of Venus and then that made me think of Lucifer. And that reminded me of, uh, the whole, you know, saying in, in, in Revelation. So I even just find that number being associated yeah. with the churches and the seas, and it seems very uh, interesting. <laughs> well, it's, it, 
it's a very, very important number, whether it's polytheist or monotheist, right? So like you have the seven wandering stars, the seven planets that the gods are represented by. Um, you have seven days of the week, which is part of the solar polytheist uh, form of worship, right? And it goes into the, you know, the 365 days a year with the sun, uh, the earth going around, around the sun. Um, so seven is generally sort of understood as a number of completeness. Things are fulfilled within the seven years, just as you have seven years of a rotation of a cycle in the Old Testament law, right? You know, the seventh year is the year of Jubilees, not Jubilees, uh, but I'm sorry, uh, but you have seven years that sort of completes the cycle, particularly with the agriculture, and then you have a year of rest for the land, and then you start the cycle over again. Uh, seven is, uh, you know, a number that shows up repeatedly in the Bible, uh, particularly, um, you know, with that sort of idea of 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 completion so that you get like the seven trumpets, right, for example, and the catastrophes there. So it, it, it has it has importance, but I would I tend to advise people not to get too much into the geomancy <laughs> and the mystical sort of aspect of the numbers because that can go into all sorts of oh, different yeah. directions. Oh, for sure. And there's many different versions in terms of how to understand, um, you know, the, the, some people might call it uh, numeral mysticism or number mysticism or Pythagorean mysticism. There's all sorts of different words for it that's out there. And that it is a very, very strong occult principle and particularly sort of leading into the geomancy aspect that the world is a matrix and yeah. who knows it may be. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it's, it's one of those areas that I just, you know, would have people ha take some caution in as you go in and don't rely on it too, too heavily. It's interesting, but you, one might want to be careful. With oh, it. you could break your brain on that stuff. Especially when you start getting into gematria and oh, all that yeah. crazy stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Or the so-called Bible codes. I mean, oh, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they may be there, and there's some interesting things, but you just spend forever, and you're not sure where where you're going with it or what it's meant to do. So, yeah. What is your take on the uh, the whole Scarlet Horror part of like the uh, I guess Revelations? I mean, what did you think? That's like. You think there's like a bigger, yeah. bigger story to that than, than most people think? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's, it's obviously a very, very important part of the allegory and the prophecy of, of Revelation. And it sort of gives you an understanding of what was and what is and what's, what's going to be, so to speak. So when we look at of the book of revelations and the woman that's on there, she's writing the beast of empires, right? And this is a beast that has seven uh, heads and seven crowns oh, I was just and, <laughs> and 10 Kings. And, you know, the seven are not only seven mountains that the woman sits on, but also the seven Kings. These are what I call the beast empires. And, 
These are the ancient beast Hmm. empires and the future beast empire that Daniel is talking about in Daniel 2 with the 10, with the uh, four metallic empires and Daniel 7 with the beast empires and Daniel 8 gives a a, a different version, but also provides more information and you arrive at 7 as well. So beast empires are empires that sort of ruled the known civilized world. And I don't mean to say that in a derogatory sense, because mm-hmm. I know there was Eastern civilizations, but that's sort of the general connotation that people would have. And so we get four that are presented of those uh, seven for the most part, and actually five for one that's coming in Daniel two and Daniel seven and Daniel eight. So beast empires biblically are interactive with the nation of Israel. So the first one is generally thought of as Egypt because that's where Israel becomes a nation. It's where the exodus happens and then the conquest. And so they had a significant part in the development and and um, tribulation of Israel as well. And then you have the second beast empire, which is Assyria. And in 721, Assyria comes in and expropriates the northern empire of Israel and takes them to Assyria and then disperses them into slavery around the world and they're lost and they won't be found until the end time and called by name when they are. So they're dispersed in the nations around the world. And then you have Babylon that's going to take over from Assyria and it's going to expropriate the southern kingdom of Judah and take them back to Babylon. And then the Persian king's going to come up, and he's going to um, <clears throat> authorize the rebuilding of the temple. And through the Persian and the Mede Empire, they're going to come back. And the Romans are going to disperse Israel again. And the Greek Empire is going to rule over brutally over Judea as well. And they're actually going to do an abomination type of of scenario in the temple as well. So all mm. of the na- all of the beast empires are intimately connected with the nation of Israel, which would make sense from Old Testament and New Testament prophecy, sort of makes some sense. So you have the end-time empire um, that is going to be the sixth empire, right? So you have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greek, uh, Rome, those are five, and then you have the end-time empire that rises out of the ashes, so to speak, uh, of the Roman Empire. And in Daniel 8, you get the same numbers. And what that's talking about is is the king of Greece, which is Alexander, and his empire that splits into four uh, of his his empire, that's five. And then out of that comes the end-time empire, which is... Uh, which comes Rome after that, and then you have uh, the, because Rome was part of the uh, Greek Empire, and then you have the same end-time empire being described in the end time. So it's just giving you more information about the beast empires and possibly where Antichrist might come from, from the Greek or the Roman Empire. And so you will have a ten-king nation that's going to rise up in the end time, Mm. and it's going to be as the Club of Rome, for example, has divided the world up into 10 groups or spheres of influence or trading blocks, and just as Atlantis had 10 kings 
ruling over a 10 king empire that was classified as the helm of world government and the best of civilization could offer at that time that's the new atlantis that bacon is talking about for the end time so the 10 matches up prophetically and with daniel and with revelations in terms of the 10 toes the 10 horns or the 10 kings it's the same allegory talking about the same group of people and antichrist mm. will rise up amongst that 10 and will come to power at the midpoint of the last seven years so if we understand that the woman is riding this beast of empires and we understand israel is in uh, or the southern kingdom has control of jerusalem and has control of the land of the covenant we might be in the fig tree generation that jesus talks about uh, so it's a good indication that we might be. Um, so we need to be aware of what's going on in the world. But the woman who rides it, she is described as a mystery woman, and that's the Mysterian, as in a mystery religion. So a polytheist kind of religion that rides all of the empires and will ride the, the seventh empire as it as it comes about in 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 the end time so she's going to be brought back to the forefront all of the beast empires and most all the empires had this mystery religion as part of the hierarchical structure you know that had a male god and a goddess as well so expect the goddess aspect to to, to come full about as well mm. and she's going to be the glue that is going to um She's going to be the glue that brings about these 10 kings. And it's going to be done through her, her prophets and things like that. We start to see the 10 kings forming in the 10 groups of nations. You can look at the trading blocks around the world. Um, and you can look at it as that term that they really like to talk about today is fears of influence with Putin, for example, trying to uh, create his old Kievan Tartarian empire that was based out of Kiev that would include all of the Baltic states as well um, as part of having a larger role in those 10 Kings. And of course, Xi from the Shah dynasty and the dragon creator gods. And so you have to understand bloodlines to understand what's going behind the geopolitical scenario is going to be taking a bigger chunk of this 10 groups of nations for the end time. So when we look at the woman, I mean, she's called a harlot and a whore or a prostitute. Those are allegories in monotheism for worshiping um, polytheist gods or other gods, right? As opposed to the true God uh, of the universe. Babylon comes from uh, the Hebrew word as it's transliterated into a Greek as, as Babel, uh, from yeah, from Babel to Babylon, and from Hebrew from Babel to Babylon. So you have Babylon as sort of an archetypical sort of understanding of the start of this mystery religion at the Tower of Babel, where Nimrod was an Antichrist type figure that ruled mm. over all of the Noahites at that time with this mystery religion that he imposed on them. And so as you get the allegory coming down in the Old Testament, you get the daughters of Babylon, the daughters of Babel. These are the religions that go out to all the different nations, and the nations are also called the daughters as well. Um, but the daughter, when it says the daughters of Babylon, that's the mystery religion that's being talked about. And so she's the mother of all of those daughters of the religions that's going to bring them back in. And this is the root religion, Babel, which is 
why you need to understand prehistory to understand Babylon. And, and Babylon is, um, you know, is, is looked upon as, you know, holding this cup of abominations, which essentially means uh, drinking from the cup of idolatry, right? So worshiping many gods again. And mystery is, is the, the Greek word mysterion, which means hidden things, secret things, as in a mystery religion and initiate. So again, all the language is that is going to this, this universal mystery religion. And Revelation 7, 17 says she sits on many waters. So it's a universal religion. And she controls the ten kings just as she controlled those empires uh, in, in, in the past. And they will destroy her at the midpoint because they grow jealous of her. So in one part, she is the universal religion. We're also told in Revelation nine times that it's a city. And it's going to be located where she sits on seven hills, which is likely in Rome. Because those are the seven uh, seven mountains of the old Romulan, or Romulan, Romulus and Remus beginning of the empires of setting Rome up between, and the walls were originally built around it for Palatine Hill, Avertine Hill, Caelian Hill, Capuline Hill, Esquiline uh, Hill, Quernal and Verminal. And the Vatican was actually on Vaticanus, Vaticanus Hill, which is outside the old walls, but later it was used to include it. But it was actually considered a sister or a branch of the Sibylline prophecies of Palatine, which were on Vatican Hill. So I think somehow the Roman Church is going to be part of this, but it's going to be kind of taken over. And that's why in Revelation and it, it talks about this this religion and the false prophet as you know having you know horns like a lamb but talking like a dragon so i think it's going to have a veneer of christianity but it's going to be polytheism at the core so we need to understand that as a city and it is a religion and in if you take the word babylon in the new testament back into Greek, it's also was understood as its definition, as it says it's for its definition, that it was an allegory for Rome. So Rome would be a likely place for the location of this religion that's going to be destroyed. And then Antichrist, when he destroys it, which he's, he's prophesied to do in Revelation 17, he will set up Jerusalem as the center of his religion. It is also Babylon, a geopolitical network. So it will control the kings, right? And they will be answerable to them. The kings will grow rich off of them. And she will be a commercial entity as well. And in a lot of the secret society writings, Babylon is going to put a value-added tax um, or a tribute on all each of the transactions that are going to happen. So it's going to control the complete commercial thing. And that's why in Revelation 18, she's, you know, talked about being destroyed and how rich it was and how the merchants grew rich, how the princes grew rich, but they're jealous of her. And Antichrist is, is going to conspire with, uh, with the 10 Kings to overthrow Babylon at the midpoint. So we need to understand Babylon as all of those sort of aspects. It's the system that is going to be put in place for Antichrist to take over relatively easy with, with a few people. And so I would call it a beast religion is probably uh, what it's going to be first understood as, but it's going to be so much more than that. 
Thank you. That was some pretty, uh, it was a deep take on the Scarlet Hornet. <laughs> you know, you had mentioned the, um, and it made me think of, uh, you mentioned the Daughters, the Daughters of Babylon. I, I've actually never heard of that. Um, that made me think of the Daughters, like something I recently came across myself, the Daughters of Zion. Have you ever heard of that? Are those yeah, anything and, and like each other at all? <laughs> typically, when you're talking about the Daughters of Zion, that gets into the polytheist end of uh, Judaism. So that would be Kabbalism and things like that. And oh, wow. so if you understand that there's yeah. different varieties of worship in Judaism, particularly as, you know, as even in, in the ancient times, you have the Babylonian mysticism entering in while Judea is in exile in Babylon, right? So they're getting that type of polytheism. That's where you get Lilith and everything sort of coming into Judaic lore in terms of being a consort of Adam and stuff like that, because Lilith is a Sumerian, Mesopotamian mm-hmm. um uh, not legend, but history and part of, 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 of their, their mythology and their religion. So, And you have another large and powerful aspect of the, the power centers of Judaism. You have most what most people would understand as the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but there's a third group in there that's called the Essenes. And the Essenes were the ones who did a lot of the writings in um, Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were, right? And they were polytheist as well. They were a polytheist portion of Judaism. And their belief was that Moses brought polytheism with him to Israel. And with sometime in the age of the monarchy, this religion of Heliopolis from the Therapeutate which they say there are, they are a branch of the therapeutic and they worship fallen angels. But they said that the monarchy went rogue with monotheism to give them sort of a mythos to the, the royal families. And so you have polytheism that's in, with, in Judaism as well. So one needs to sort of understand that. So when they're talking about the daughters of Zion, that's what they're talking about is, is the daughters of those original religions. That's really interesting because I really didn't know much about that. And believe it or not, like, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're probably still talking about the same thing. I'm just trying to understand how I came across that with the Mormons. Because the Mormons yeah. actually have the Daughters of Zion as well. And so now it's like making me wonder what is really behind the Mormon religion. Like, is, is, is that stuff, well, you know? I, you know, I like, you know, I like the, yeah, I, I try and be respectful of all religions. And oh, yeah, yeah divisions in, in Christianity as well, they have a different sort of organizational structure. They almost have an adept level of leadership there at the top. What's interesting about the the Mormon movement is, is most of the Mormon founders were all Masons. And so you have sort of a Masonic structure into that organization, which Masons tend to be Gnostics. And so you see a lot of that. And I'm not saying that it trying to do that in a, in a derogatory manner because I'll take Christianity back to uh, its rise to being a state-sponsored religion by Constantine. And you have a Jerusalem church that is completely different in its take on the, on the Bible for the most part and how worship and things. It's very Judaic. It's a branch of Judaism. 
But when Constantine takes over, he merges Mithraism, which is an offshoot of Zoroastrianism of the you know, of the original Aryans and Hinduism, and he merges that in with Christianity as well as Sol Invictus, and as well and as well as some Egyptian imagery. So you get all of these imageries and the these these uh, crosses and rosaries and things that really you you wouldn't have had that as part of the Jerusalem church. And so he's doing that to unite the empire. And you even get things like Mithra's birth date as December 25 being celebrated for the birth of Jesus. And you get the celebration during the Sol Invictus, you know, sort of period of the winter solstice. And you get Easter, you know, set up as opposed to Passover for the time of the crucifixion. And that's uh, a worship of Isis and Astaroth. And so, you, like I say, you get all of these things and they're not celebrating the feasts of God that Jesus would have celebrated or Paul would have celebrated or any of the disciples because they were Jews who had accepted the time of their Messiah was Jesus and his coming, right? So that's their distinction from the Judaic um, religion that the rest of Judaism didn't accept. So they looked at themselves as Jews. Was he also the one I had a, a, a listener say uh, he was the one who also changed the day, I guess, from Saturday to Sunday? To help convert uh, Mithraists, do you know if he did that as well? Yes, yes, yeah. So I mean, the Sabbath is yeah, the Sabbath is a Saturday, and you know they they put the day of Sabbath to the Sunday, right? And <laughs> and all the days of the week are named after either Roman and Greek gods or Norse gods. Yes. So um, there's there's a reason for it. But I mean, even if they had left it on Saturn Day, it would have been you could have said there's still you know. Uh, you know, worshiping on 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 the, the days of the week that are named after after polytheist gods. But what's interesting about the Sunday is the reason was for it was is that was the day of the resurrection, which is fine. I get that, um, but that's not how it was set down. The Sabbath is the Saturday, and they had no authority to change it, but they did because that was the holy day of Mithraism and Sol Invictus. Thank you. Thank you. Not to kind of go off the, um, I might be throwing you for a loop here. It's just you, you, when you mentioned the Mormons and the Masons, um, that's, I was wondering if maybe there was anything else that you could touch on with. That. <laughs> I know that probably is deep in itself. It's just uh, like, I like honest, I don't <laughs> want to give away too much, but me and Lux are covering something for the occult rejects. And we ended up down a Mormon rabbit hole. And, uh, so I just find it yeah. to be pretty interesting if you, cause you mentioned the Masons and we found that too. I was just wondering if there's anything you want to add to that or get into that for a little bit. I know that might be throwing you, throwing you for a loop off topic. Um, it's just, when you mentioned that, I just thought it was interesting yeah. <laughs> that you did mention that there were into Masons, you know, a lot of Masons that were Mormons as well or vice versa, whatever. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, they, they do, they do accept as a, I'm a Christian, they do accept the Bible but they have the ability to have another sort of uh, piece of script, uh, a book of Mormon, their scripture that they add on to it. And the leaders of the church have the authority as their prophet to change any law or anything in scripture that they want. So there's aspects mm. of 
how that religion is set up with sort of the adept elders, this, this ideology that you're going to be uh, gods in the future world, overseeing your own planets and some things like that, that, you know, I probably, you know, I don't. <laughs> I think they had cartoon to, to commercials support. like that, right? Um, <laughs> if I remember yeah, correctly, like it looked like they're on I'm a not, spaceship. Yeah. What, what I, I mean, and I think Mormons are great people. I mean, they they do, oh. they live healthy. They're nice. They do good things. I would just encourage people to um, have a closer look in terms of what the leadership does with that and, and decide, is that how you want to worship Christ or not? I mean, but everybody has free choice thing. to do, do what they want. And I don't think they're necessarily this evil sort of organization. I mean, they're, um, Everybody here in this world, they're here to figure out where they fit mm-hmm. and what things are all about. And we're all trying to learn about that. So we ought to be able to learn about that in a respectful way. And then oh, yeah, it's and definitely make interesting. the Very best interesting. decisions that we can, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I will even say, I mean, you know, there's always, there's good in everybody. It's just, you can get a, a few bad yeah. apples everywhere, so... Yeah. Um, something you did mention, and now I'll go back to the topic. You said I didn't. Want, I just wanted to just hear your take on that. Um, you had mentioned, I guess, about like the seals, if they're even supposed to be going in the order that we think they are, right? I find that well interesting. If you well, want to go I, over that. I, well, I, yeah, I think the seals happen in a linear order. Okay. All right. Um, but they have to list them in some way. So one would presume there'd be a linear order, but they're all interrelated, right? They're all interconnecting. They're kind of as part of the same thing. Um, And ultimately the seals will produce as an aggregate, 25% destruction of the planet, 25% destruction of all the waters, 25% of the people killed. So that's why I say that they kind of work together. And you also have such Mm. destruction there that at the end of Revelation 6, you have the kings and the princes of the earth running into caves, whatever those are, whether or not they're underground shelters or in mountains or whatever, but they think it's the day of the Lord it's so bad. So one should expect there's going to be wars there, but there's still, you know, the Revelation 9 war and there's Armageddon yet to come, that whatever comes in the seals is not as big as what's coming. And you also get something that's interesting called wormwood that's in Mm. there. And, but to understand before I talk about wormwood, um, I would say that we need to understand what Jesus said about the end time catastrophes. And he said, these were the beginning of sorrows and he listed four of them and Mm. they were wars and rumors of war. They were earthquakes. There were uh, famine and pestilence. Right. And so these would get stronger as birth pangs as they go along. So we're going to see the same kinds of catastrophes in the fig tree generation getting stronger as the same types of catastrophes that are with the opening of the seals, the same catastrophes that repeat with the trumpets, but getting stronger and the same catastrophes with, with the bold judgments. So, Wormwood is interesting in that, in terms of uh, of how it affects what's going on. And there's so much mythos out there about it. Is it is it the twelfth planet? Is it Nibiru? And 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 how close does it get? And I do think we're going to see 
aliens as part of the <laughs> confusion of the end time. They'll be represented yeah. as aliens, whatever they are. I'll leave right. that for other people to, right. to believe. Um, but I think that's going to be part of it. But I struggle with uh, a planet coming in close enough or too close that would cause some sort of damage because that would almost create an extinction type of event. There's a very small edge between doing some damage and destroying everything. And if it gets too close, I mean, it's, 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 oh, it's all over. I mean, if people, but want I understand. To, so I, yeah, if people want to like, you know, if you, cause you even mentioned before people could think it's a matrix or whatever. If you want to believe that there's actually planets out there, if one comes supposedly by science going by science See, once they yeah. even come close to each other don't they start like an electric basically storm oh, yeah between? yeah i it's, mean we'd, we'd be shredded if something any even came close if yeah, you, yeah you you would destroy our galaxy very quickly <laughs> yeah. right? so um so what it what is wormwood i mean it, it's it, it's looked upon as a star and just as in the wandering stars and you get a connection to the planets as you know the sun the moon venus Saturn, Jupiter, Mars, those seven wandering stars. But, and so you can make a connection with that, and, and people do, and, and, and I recognize that. But what's interesting is, is what Wormwood does is it makes the waters bitter, right, so that you can't drink, and it, and it spoils the, the, the fresh waters. So a lot of, again, what I say of the terms that are used in Revelation are explained in, in the Old Testament and in prehistory. And in Hebrew, uh, the word uh, wormwood, it derives from a poison, as in hemlock, right? So this is something that's probably going to poison the, the water. And it's used as such as wormwood in the Old Testament. So you have Judaic... Jude, Judean people receiving a prophecy, and this is John, who's a person of Judah, and it's going to be recorded in Greek, right? And so there will be correlations, but not as direct as what we would like sometimes back to the original Hebrew as, it's come, as it was written down in Greek. But when we look at what it, what it says in, 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 in there about uh, Wormwood, it's going to make the waters bitter, and wormwood is used in, in the same sense as being a poison, but also as bitter. And so I think what's going on here is there's going to be some sort of weapon that's part of the wars and the things that are going to cause the, the, the waters to go bitter. And they're actually described as being bitter in Revelation. And what's interesting is, is, as well is that there's a possibility that it could be a biological weapon or it might even be perhaps a nuclear. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at the worm word uh, wormwood and I look for, does that word sort of come down in into history as being sort of part of anything to do with nuclear, we get the Ukraine pop up oh, <laughs> very interestingly. And, a city called Chernobyl that everybody knows was a nuclear catastrophe. And in the Ukraine, yeah. uh, and in the Ukrainian language, uh, Chernobyl means, or is derived, it means wormwood and derives from that. So oh, I wonder wow. whether or not it's a nuclear type of thing that is been, is, is going to be coming down. So it's, 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 it's hard to know what wormwood is, but what it does do, you have to look at its effect. What does it do? 
and it poisons the water. It makes them bitter, and it helps with the 25% depopulation that's going to go on during the seal judgments. You know what's wild is that, um, I'll say this, and then I do actually have a question already, if you don't mind. Um, you know, you're talking about wormwood, and I was thinking, like, this is going back to when I used to practice ceremonial magic. Wormwood uh, would be associated, it's an herb that would be associated with uh, sphere five on the tree of life, which would also go along with Mars. Yep. And that's a red sphere. And he's saying, like, it, it might make things better. That makes me think of turning water to wine. Uh, Mars is very martial, you know, war. And <laughs> I'm just thinking wormwood and how it fits on that sphere that really is describing the same thing you're saying. Yeah. That's, so That's wild. Yeah, yeah you know, and then that, maybe that's getting too deep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, we don't know. We're yeah. guessing, right, as to what it might be. Uh, again, my approach is from a... Christian perspective is, is how, how is that defined through other prophecies and how is it defined um, in prehistory and in, in ancient history and in the Old Testament? So, and as bad as Wormwood is, it happens before the three woes. Oh. Yeah, like it's going to get worse. And yeah. so, um, and, you know, the three woes start with the opening of the abyss in Revelation 9. And the first woe is these crazy scorpion beings that are going to come out of the abyss, and they're led by Abaddon on Apollyon, who in my next book I'm going to make a very good case to being is Azazel as the king of the abyss, as you take that back in its etymology and in the, the titles. And Abaddon and Apollyon essentially mean destroyer. And that they're going That's to wrong. sting people with their tails, uh, like a scorpion does, and that people are going to seek death for five months but won't receive it. See, <laughs> yo, see, this blows my mind because this goes. I'm like, I'm thinking right now. I'm like, Mars, which is the fifth sphere in the tree, does also uh, have Scorpio, it, yeah. it, it, and in Scorpio is the water version of uh like aries is fire and then yeah. mars also rules scorpio which is the water kind of the sister of aries like kind of like the yeah. female version of aries so now you which is going towards the third sphere which is the abyss if you're going up that yep. side of the yep. tree so it sounds like it's just very there's wild. a connection there's a connection there and uh Some wild wh whether stuff. it's in in polytheist uh history and astrology and or religions they have a similar sort of prehistory, just seen through a polytheist lens, and the same approach to what's going to happen in, in, in the end of the world. So Azazel is the god of war, right? He's the one who taught in the Book of Enoch how to make weapons and the art of warcraft to the Nephilim before the flood, right? And he's the one who is ascribed as the scapegoat to uh, for all of the sins and is thrown as the leader of the the rebellious ones into the abyss and so he's probably the destroyer god who corrupted the whole earth um and believe me it's more than just the violence i mean the genome and the dna's and everything were corrupted everything was corrupted that's the hebrew word shakath and it means decay destroy um ruin and so everything on earth including the plants, including the animals, and most of the humans, they had corruption that was done to them. And so hmm. we don't get 
things in the Bible too much about this, but the Hebrew word for scorpion, uh, Greek it's scorpio, uh, that's used there, but it's it's the word a crab, A-Q-R-A-B. Um, Sumerian, it was A-K-R-A-B. And there are these beings in Sumerian history, they're called Akrababalu and or Gurdabuamalu. <laughs> I have to make sure I don't butcher those words, but I, I think I got them both right there. And there are depictions, if you Google Akrababuamalu and Gurdabalu, um, and I have documents with pictures for people if they want to get a hold of me on this, they are exactly like the descriptions of what's coming out of the, the abyss. And they were created by the parent mm. god in, in the Sumerian mythology, Tiamat, which is a Leviathan-type creature that in various uh, occult um, or polytheist religions and, and mythology, you know, it could have been Marduk, it could have been Indra, it could have been Baal, all the accounts have a version of somebody killing this Leviathan that has many heads, just as the Bible does with God. It's a, one of those common things that, that are around the world. And she creates these scorpion beings as sort of like an offspring god, just as Baal is an offspring god of, of uh, El, or Anki is an offspring god of Anu, again, a constant in, in the polytheist uh, recollection of prehistory. She creates these super destroyer beings to punish the offspring gods who are rebelling against them. And in all polytheist cultures, all the offspring gods, they rebel and they overthrow the parent gods, right? Yeah. And so they're there to prevent that from happening. Unfortunately, Tiamat gets killed, but the scorpion beings also guarded the sun temples and also guarded the gateways to Hades, which is the underworld where the abyss is located. And you get these types of beings in Egyptian mythology, in Mayan mythology, and they have the ability to destroy the world. But they're not the ones who destroy the world. And so the war that comes in Revelation 9 isn't the same beings, even though they have similar kinds of descriptions. These are like biological weapons that follow this, but it's what comes out of the what comes out of the abyss, is, which is considered the first war. This two hundred million man war that's going to follow right after. That's going to be counter, uh, be like a counterfeit Armageddon that Antichrist will ride to power on, and will seem like Armageddon is going to kill a third of the people of the earth. It's not considered the wall. It's these creatures that come out of the abyss because these are the worst of the beings that were before the flood. And if they did the same things again after the flood would be those offspring gods would have went to the abyss as well. And they're coming back to um, finish off the end time. But it's, it's like the catastrophes are all cont contrived catastrophes. This isn't God sending down judgment. This is God permitting us to do along with, Everybody that's on the planet, and, and I think there's descendants of the giants, and we're going to see an implication of them in the end time, and there's oh, going wow. to be aliens or fallen angels and their whole organizational structure. They're all, it's all going to be here. Um, but it's the, what, what's interesting, though, is, is the woe is, is with those worst of the 
angelic beings um, who destroyed the antediluvian world, they're coming back again in the end time. And these creatures that are in this 200 million man war that are marching like an army, they are the same descriptions as in the Joel 1 and 2 prophecy, which happens before Armageddon and are part of the Gog War alliance that happens again before the midpoint of the last seven years. So Ezekiel 38 and 39 with Gog and Magog, and understand that Gog is not in the Bible from a, a genealogical perspective. Magog is, but Gog is not. Gog is the offspring of Iapetus, a parent god in Greek mythology who created offspring giants like Gog, Magog, and Elbion as examples. Their names get into the Bible. Probably their names have been changed to represent uh, their switch over as early patriarchs and the peoples they led to polytheism, or they chose the names of the giants because they were living amongst giants after the flood. Either or their names, but Gog is not part of that genealogy. But yet you get this Gog and Magog as part of the allegory for the war along with the Alliance of Nations. And I think that has something to do with the giants coming back and at the timing of the abyss because it happens at the same time as, as the abyss is opens, but after that five months and is the same war as the 200 million man war that Antichrist will take credit for winning. You know, it's wild you mentioned the, you know, the crabs or whatever because... Uh... When me and Lux covered the Scarlet Horse series, we covered the Moon card at one point, and uh, the Moon card, the card, the card that I used, you know, it had two pillars, and then it has like water coming down the middle of it, and then a dog and a wolf across each other, and then it looks like neither a lobster or some sort of crab by the water, and I used to tell him, you know, I think that might be a crab because as crazy as it sounds, like I started looking at everything what's on like the animals and thinking of them backwards. The dog would be God and the wolf would be Flo and you have a stream right between both of them. And then you even have the crab backwards would be Bark. So I'm like, I'm like, is this where Ozzy got Bark at the moon from? Who knows? But like now you have me interested in this crab <laughs> thing where I'm going to have to start looking at, uh, I'm going to have to look into this whole crab thing because it seems to kind of fit in with something that we might have touched on and didn't even notice. Very weird. Yeah. Um, before I go on too much, I, yeah, I, and, I, I have a question. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I was going to say, these creatures show up, um, whether or not this is an antediluvian or before the flood story where Gilgamesh, his name has been inserted on an antediluvian giant, maybe named Gilgamesh, because Gilgamesh is created after the flood, says son of Lugalbanda and and also a, a, a female goddess. Um, so he encounters these uh, creatures uh, on his way to the cedar forest, right, to deal with King Hababa. And it's also told in, and it's told in, in, in the Ugaritic version as well, but it's also told in the legends of Idzdubar, uh, which a fellow by the name Smith said was Nimrod, but it's the exact same story as Gilgamesh. So it's, to me, it's just a transliterated name of who, I mean, whether it's not the actual name is Gilgamesh or not, but he runs into these creatures and they're described in in the Epic of Gilgamesh uh, as well as the Iluma Amish and the legends of Itzubar. So there's, there's stuff out there and they're all talking a similar description of each of these beings. And so these beings were, if that is a post-Iluvian story, were after the flood as well for a short period of time as with the offspring gods and they were 
walking amongst humankind for a time, just as those gods did before the flood. All right, I do have a, I have two questions for you. The first one, uh, Jesus spoke of his return within the lifetimes of his disciples. Uh, what does Gary think of the theory the millennial reign of Christ has been completed and our lifetime has, no, and our timeline has been messed with? You you have any uh, thoughts on that? Well, um, I think a lot of people sort of overlay that Jesus said he would come back in the lifetime of of, of his disciples and apostles. And some of the apostles probably even thought that as well, but he never said that. He only gave the signs to when he would return. And uh, again, he referred to Daniel and they would have understood the prophecy of, of the weeks. Uh, And there's uh, and there is a seven years that were set aside, but a timetable not, um, provided for it. So 49 weeks were filled and that would have been right up to the destruction of the temple. So one might presume that that would have happened if you're just not saying that, Hey, that is uh, reserved for the end time, which it says in the, in that prophecy, uh, then you would get an interpretation that it, you know, would happen in the lifetime of, of the disciples, but it, he doesn't say that. And the Bible doesn't really say that. So, Understanding that, uh, then, and I think the question was, if, if I understood it right, that a lot of these events would have already happened. Is it, was that the question? Uh, I'll go back to it. Uh, oh, if the theory, the millennial reign of Christ has been completed and our timeline right. has been messed with. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we don't know whether or not our timeline has been messed with or not in terms of... Uh, how history has been recorded. Uh, I don't think there's a timeline from a sort of macro sense has been changed. Um, you know, like people going back in time and changing it or going forward or, or, or whatever. Uh, what we do know is, is that um, Daniel provided a set of events that would happen before the abomination and when Antichrist would come. So none of the events that a lot of people sort of ascribe to the destruction of of the temple and the abomination sort of happening has happened yet. Um, So we have that in Daniel 11. So we get the sequence from him, what happens before the midpoint. We also get it from the point of Jesus chronology we haven't seen in daniel 2 7 and 8 we haven't seen the rise of the 10 kings yet so that never happened we haven't seen ezekiel 37 and in the exodus and the and the resurrection of the dry bones we haven't seen all the things that would have to have happened if we're already beyond the millennial event right right so but again i understand how people sort of get there. But my approach is, is you can't leave out inconvenient passages and it all has to fit. So either if you, if you're doing that, then you're accepting, if you're, you're accepting the fact that the Bible is in contradiction, which I don't. Um, my approach is, is that it fits. You just need to re- let it read itself and fit everything in based on the chronology there. And it, and it seems, seems to work. So we haven't seen Antichrist come yet, and so Armageddon follows that. We haven't seen Armageddon. We haven't seen the Babylon universal religion. 
Uh, all we get are promises from both sides of a new age or a new millennium and or the millennium when Jesus comes that he'll rule for a thousand years after Armageddon. So we haven't seen in any, any of these events and we haven't seen a sign. We haven't seen the rapture. We, I mean, I can go on and on and on of all the events that we haven't seen. And so my approach is not to get ahead of the chronology and the events. And so I know we're not in the, in the sealed judgments because we haven't had 10 years of tribulation yet. We haven't seen the rise of the universal religion. We haven't seen the 10 Kings. We haven't seen world government. So I try and sort of get people saying, Hey, let's just not get ahead of events that things will happen. And they may not always happen the way that we think that they'll happen, but, the major events have to happen according to how they've been prophesied or the Bible's not accurate. So mm. you have to make your choice on that. I have another question. Um, I'm not exactly sure how what specifics, but uh, one person was asking, what are your thoughts on Buddhism? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's question. a religion that is, you know, produces really good people, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think most religions, people in there are trying to be good. Um, and there's probably leadership in all religions that are bad, even the Christian religion, when we've seen a lot of evils in Christianism. Um, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's it's a religion that is polytheism, so it's not my, my preferred uh, belief system um, and people should should make their own choices and I think they provide Buddhism is is kind of unique I think it provides a lot of answers to people that some of the other polytheist religions do not it's a good way to say it yeah right and yeah. so it's more attractive for really them than, than other polytheist religions and there's a similar a kinship but not identical to what uh, Christianity might offer, for example, whereas, you know, Buddha's, Buddha was uh, received an incarnation from Vishnu that provided the wisdom and the link into heaven and the knowledge and took Hinduism to sort of a different plateau and a different level of meaning and a different way of connecting with the gods. And so um, that's not uncommon in polytheism where you would have incarnations that they add something. And this is not a demonic possession. This is an actual God, just as, you know, Vishnu incarnated something like 16 times. And Shiva, hmm. I think, incarnated more than 10 times. And, in, you know, and, and as an example, this is down a rabbit hole, but Shiva yeah. incarnated into a God named Narashima, uh, which was a lion demigod. And uh, this seems to be sort of the imagery that Lewis was using for his incarnation of what it would look like on another planet with different beings if Jesus came back as a Christ figure into Aslan, who was a lion. Uh, but Jesus isn't an incarnation. It's a different concept uh, as opposed to an incarnation because an incarnation happens after the person is born. Um, where with with Jesus becoming flesh, you have the oikaterian, which is the del earthly physical dwelling place for the spirit, which is in the soul and the body. And so he needed an oikaterian. So the Holy Spirit does that with 
Mary and creates the soul and the spirit. So or it's the, the soul and the body. So the spirit can dwell in it just as gods need a physical oiketarian to interact physically in this world because they're spirit beings. They need uh, a body and a soul to be a dwelling place for that spirit, which is how they're able to create offspring physically in the world by creating that body. Just as in the Bible, we have angels seen as humans and interacting, drinking, talking, and the world affects anything that becomes physical, which can, it's, just, it's a sinful world. So even angels can be affected by um, the, the physical world and demons are the bodiless spirits of giants and they're looking for an oiketarian when they're trying to possess. So oh. it's an important concept, but that's not a symbiotic relationship like the avatar avatara effect of Vishnu and Buddha. If that's more symbiotic where it adds something and biblically we know this can happen because Satan enters into Judas to portray Jesus. So he has the courage to continue it. So he adds that to him, right? So we get that avatar, avatara concept in the Bible as well, but not to be confused with a violent takeover by a demon spirit. Now also in the occult, you can have like the adepts, like the shamans and the magi and, you know, uh, high level degrees of adepts in, in all the mysticism, they will invite, a spirit in. It's not clear to me whether it's an angel spirit or it's a demon spirit that will provide additional knowledge and or power to them. But I, again, I don't recommend that because that's usually not a not a bad thing. But seemingly there's some sort of bond at, with as an adept that that demonic spirit doesn't tend to turn it into like an exorcist type of possession, right? Where it's totally um, not symbiotic. There's a war going on between the two, two spirit hosts. So anyways, I know that was down, down a rabbit trail, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, Buddhism (laughs) is, is, you know, I, I've got nothing against, I just, I just don't agree with uh, worshiping multiple gods, right? I believe there's one God and he created through the word, all the other beings. So, and I guess uh, something I did want to ask you, um, we'll probably wrap it up in like soon. Uh, you might have kind of answered this a little bit. Um, you probably answered it already. But uh, through the things you were saying, um, I guess, do you think we're in that revelations part yet or we're headed there? Or in other words, as well as also, if you don't think we are, do you think we may see it in our lifetime? Yeah, I, I think we're possibly in what I call the fig tree generation. Oh, you know, and I was going to ask genera- you if you could explain just real quick what that actually means, in case anybody, yeah. nobody's ever heard that before. You said that earlier, and I meant to ask you, and I totally forgot. Yeah, so this is a specific generation that Jesus refers to at the end of his oration of the events that are going to mark the chronology of the end time, that there's a specific generation that's been reserved. And he calls it the fig tree generation. And when you see the fig tree blooming, you know that this is the generation and all the things I have talked about will be um, completed. Um, You know, the world will pass away, but my word will never pass away. That's how firm it comes down in, in his oration. So what's the fig tree? And when is it? The fig tree in prophecy is uh, the southern kingdom of Judea. 
And the vine is the northern kingdom in prophetic Old Testament allegory. And so when Jesus was in Jerusalem and just before his crucifixion, he killed a fig tree after taking a fig off of it. And uh, it was sort of in line with what is going to be happening shortly with, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem. And so I think this is the fig tree that he's referring to and in conjunction with the Southern Kingdom, because that was the Judean Southern Kingdom he was visiting at that time. And so typically in end time prophecy, Jerusalem is the center of all of the events that are going on in the world. And so Israel becomes a nation of Judeans in 1947, as declared in 1948 with the war. So that might tip off the, uh, the last generation. I think it's more like Jerusalem. If there is, if, if we have one in our generation, that would be the kickoff. And then the next question becomes is how long is a generation according to what Jesus would be referencing? And so the fig tree generation is, is an overarching uh, sign, at, just as the birth pangs are at the beginning and also the days of Noah. There's three over, overarching signs to understand what he's talking about. And so when we look at how long a generation can be in the Bible, we have in the book of Exodus... A generation is 40 years. We also have in the book of Psalms, a generation is 70 years. And then in Genesis 6, 3, we have the reduction of a life or a generation with the creation of the giants who became immortal gods, uh, the heroes of old, of, of the antediluvian period that would live on basically forever as gods in a physical body. He limits life to 120 years. So we don't know specifically what, the generation is, or that it has to be the full generation. But let's say it's Jerusalem as the kickoff, 40 years would obviously be passed. 70 years puts us into 2037, and if it's 120 years, there's lots of things to, to be fulfilled. So um, I, I tend to look at probably, you know, 70 years, but we could be 120 years. And so what I try and get people to do based on, again, my understanding and my approach is to say, you know what, let's not get ahead of biblical chronology and let's not say we're further along than what we are. And there's things that need to, need to be happening before you can say, hey, it's Revelation 12 and we've got the astrology sign in the sky or uh, the rapture's happening tomorrow. I mean, let's get things squared up so that we're not losing our credibility, but we're trying to help people understand better. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate you coming on, too, for, uh, you know, even though it didn't work out with Lux, I'm glad you still made it on. That was great. I mean... You hit me with a few things, and now it's like, oh, I got to go research this shit. Especially yeah, the crab thing. The crab thing blew me away. Just, it, it's never ending, you know, <laughs> trying to connect the dots. So, And even you mentioning Nimrod a few times, that, that's something that I really got to start looking into. Because I've even heard that considered to be like Skinwalker, and that can go into yeah. so many different things yeah. itself. And so. he's, a, he's a significant individual as he's remembered in so, in many cultures and a particularly important patriarch to the secret societies yes. and the Gnostics. Yes. And he's, and he's understood as 
receiving the knowledge that Hermes finds from the antediluvian world that was written on locations and two pillars, one that could survive an apocalypse of fire and one by flood. Obviously, it's the one by flood that he would find. To the location of the knowledge that Enoch had written down, according to their allegories and, and details, on 36,525 books stacked in nine vaults underneath the pyramids. And he brings that back to Nimrod, who uses that knowledge to build Babel City, build Babel Tower, which a lot of people think he was building a Stargate. And out of Akkadian, which, you know, sort of descends out of Nimrod, it doesn't mean confusion. It means Akka, uh, it means Bab as in gateway and El as in God, or you might say it as Babalu. So that technology may have been used for that purpose, that he was trying to release the gods he was worshipping out of the abyss uh, that were locked in before the flood. And... Um, that's where the religion comes from, which is known sort of scripturally as, as Enochian uh, mysticism, mm. which would be, you know, the, the religion of Atlantis, right? It's the polytheism, the sun worship, and he's accredited in the book of Enoch as inventing, inventing solar worship and stuff like that. So it sort of all sort of makes sense. So Nimrod is very, very interesting individual, and he's remembered as a grand master of ancient of the ancient Masonic order and writer of the first constitution after the flood. That's how important he is. Hmm. May have to have you come back on to cover him. We'll talk about that subject one day because I find that very interesting as well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. So I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up here. It's like an hour and 15. Uh, sure. I would have went longer, but I just, I, I have another show at three o'clock. So oh, that's <laughs> okay. That's okay. There was, I think we covered some. Yeah. Some yeah. Well, material. I'm sure like I will, I know I'll have you on again. So that this, you know, this is the last <laughs> time we're speaking. Um, yeah. So uh, I think I'm just, as far as I know, I think your links are already in. If people are watching the live on YouTube, his links, I yep. think, are already in there. You can go check out his stuff. Gary, would you like to plug and, re, you know, just remind people again where your stuff is at? Um, yeah, the best uh, the best place to get a hold of me is through my website, Genesis 6 Conspiracy. That's the Genesis 6, number 6, conspiracy.com. There's a contact the author there. You can get a signed copy if you're interested in my book. Uh, you can get a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. You can connect to Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or to um, the Kindle edition. And you can also get a hold of me on you know on Facebook under Messenger as well. Um, but sometimes the messages and messengers, they get filtered out. So I, oh, I go through yeah. my filter bin about every 10 days. So it might take a little bit longer to, to, to find your message in there. But I will get back to you if, if somebody uh, does if somebody uh, does ask me a question or has a request for information. There is one other thing I, I should have talked about, and I'll, I'll only take a minute if I can on this, mm -hmm. is on um, – the universal religion that we talked about, the woman on, on, on the beast, and there's an interesting passage in 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 Revelation eighteen uh, twenty three, and it connects to those birth pangs that I was talking about, and that they get stronger, and that we're probably in kind of the echoes of the birth pangs if we are indeed in the uh, fig tree generation. Uh, just as you see Russia trying to sort of push out and and get a bigger part for themselves in 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 the, in the new world order. So Revelation eighteen twenty three talks about all the nations were deceived through her sorceries. 
And it's a key word because if you understand secret societies and their history, understand that the Royal Society was created by the Rosicrucians and Freemasonry and chartered in 1662. And they called themselves the last of the sorcerers and the first of the scientists. And these are the same groups of people where Bacon comes out of as being the founder of the English language and the final editor of the King James Version Bible, where you're getting this term sorceries that are being utilized. And in some of the English translations that aren't KJV, it might say magic spells, but it's, it's it won't make a difference where I'm going here. It's, you uh, said, you know, you said Frank, you said Francis huh? Bacon. Yeah, Francis Bacon. Yeah, some people think he might be Shakespeare as well. Well, there's a good, <laughs> this is good evidence. Good, good reason. That's a show in itself, too, by the way. <laughs> oh, if you could do that, I'd love that, too. So yeah, oh, yeah. I'll write I've that down. I'll start writing down yeah. things yeah. to have you on yeah. for. <laughs> so this word, uh, sorceries, comes up uh, three times or yeah, three times in the book of Revelations. And they all go back to the same kind of word. There's, there's sorcery, sorcerers, sorcerers. So, uh, and it's uh, pharmakia, pharmacus, and pharmacos. And pharmakia is the root word for pharmaceuticals. And what's interesting is, is that we have the pharmaceuticals that are becoming oligarchs in the world and very, very powerful, and that it is a supplier of things that will prevent diseases, contrived human-made diseases perhaps, and are, are, are going to grow wealthy on it. And it's through these sorceries that Babylon is going to control the world. So you can imagine organizations starting to come together in this, this organizational structure. So old French, it's pharmacy, uh, and from where we get uh, our pharmaceuticals from. And what it means is a chemical potion or a treatment uh, prepared by a sorcerer, and a charm or a spell. Damn. And what's also interesting is, is that you heard the term therapeutic I was talking about through Heliopolis. They were also a medical cult, right? Not mm. a cult, but of developing medicines, just as the Essenes were. The Greek god of uh, medicine is Asclepius, and his son is Hippocrates, whom the doctors take their Hippocratic oath to, and his daughter was Hygieia, which is the uh, bowl of Hygieia, is, is the older version, although there is a rex and a mortar symbol to it, to the pharmaceutical associations, but the bowl of Hygieia is like this grail-like goblet with a snake that comes up, um, and uh, she's the sister of Hippocrates. Uh, and so you get all of this information that is sort of connecting back as to how things are coming together if we are actually in in the, in the in the fig tree generation and what's also interesting is that um the staff of escapolis is uh either i'm trying to remember it it's either just no it is a single uh motif serpent and the mystery schools were a double uh, serpent motif. Um, and the medical associations, one professional, one commercial, will use those motifs as well. There is something that's connected back <laughs> in all of this I think you're right. that we, we want to be aware of. And, and again, I'm not against people taking 
certain types of remedies, but be aware of anything that has ability that uh, changes DNA. I think that was a, that was a very good point. I'm glad you brought that all up. Actually, I think you, you know, without saying too much, I think you said a lot with that. <laughs> yeah, you have to be have to be careful in terms of how you how you present that. But <laughs> very uh, well done. <laughs> thank you, Gary. Um, so yeah, so that was Gary Wayne, everybody. Um, I thank everyone for jumping in. The people asking questions, uh, the people who jumped in on the live. I appreciate all the listeners joining in. Um, you let everybody know already where they could find your stuff. Yep, I the, did. The links are in the bottom. And uh, I guess that is the end of another NY Patriot episode. Thank you very much again, Gary. You always bring amazing stuff, and you've got me thinking about tons of things now. And I have to write down and have you on again. So <laughs> thank you again. And, uh, yeah, until the next one, everybody be good. And, uh, later. <laughs>